When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Hello there, listeners, and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to episode 391 of Sustainable Minimalists, a show about intentional and eco-friendly minimalist living. Welcome to Back to School Week on the podcast. Oh my goodness, so exciting. On today's show, we're discussing the ways in which we as parents can ensure our children head off to school with the best possible foundation. That's what we're doing today. On Thursday's episode, we're discussing the school supplies issue. The teachers send home a school supplies list all new things, some things seem frivolous, expensive for sure. What are we as eco-minimalists to do? And speaking of school supplies, yeah, the new school supplies and the fresh new outfits and the haircuts and the cool new kicks, they can definitely help our children get into the school spirit. But there are plenty of research-backed ways to help kids of all ages thrive. And spoiler alert, surprise to no one, these research-backed ways have nothing to do with the fresh new sneakers and the outfits and the haircuts and the school supplies. It has everything to do with the rhythms and routines that we quietly enact in our homes every darn day. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Rebecca Jackson. She is a brain wellness expert, and she's also the author of the new book, which comes out September 5th, titled Back on Track, A Practical Guide to Help Kids of All Ages Thrive. Dr. Jackson, I am so excited to talk to you about my absolute favorite time of the year, back to school time. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. Well, you're so welcome. Today, we're talking about getting our kids back on track, not just for the new school year, which I'll be honest, in my house is going to be a challenge. My kids are in summer mode 110%, getting them back into the earlier bedtimes, earlier wake-ups, school demands schedule is going to be a challenge. So we're talking about that, but we're also talking about the bigger picture of getting our kids back on track after, oh my goodness, that pandemic. So let's start with the pandemic. What has research found have been the implications or the consequences of the pandemic on our children? You know, this is such an important question, and I'm so happy to talk about it because research is uncovering more and more. The pandemic was huge, and we want to forget about it, and we just want to move on from it and not think about it or talk about it anymore. But that period of time in all of our lives created massive 
stress and change that sustained over a long period of time. We functioned different. Schooling was different. So there was a change for our kids and their sensory exposure and experiences, which actually is a huge contributor to their development. There was a change in reduction in their social interactions. And what we're seeing is there's been a change in kids' development as a result of that. So our kids are in an environment where our expectations of their skills and abilities haven't changed. If they're in third grade, we still think they're ready to be learning long division and multiplication and all the things that go along with third grade. But in some ways, many of our kids are socially and emotionally a little bit more immature. Yes, I'm thinking about my nine-year-old and my six-year-old. And I'm also thinking about a statement you made in your book, which really hit me hard. You said that the pandemic was an amplifier of existing challenges. So a kid that perhaps struggled with, let's just use the example of anxiety, the pandemic amplified that struggle with anxiety. Can you speak more on this? Because I think for a lot of parents, when we talk about hitting academic benchmarks, that sounds a little bit out of reach or out of touch for the average parent, but talking about how the pandemic amplified something our child was already struggling with, that's something we can really feel and understand. So can you speak more on that? Yeah. And it it amplified for both kids and adults. When we think about the brain, what's easy to forget or not realize or understand is some of our brain's resources are really fragile. So our ability to pay attention, our ability to regulate our mood and emotions. When the sun and the stars and the moon align perfectly, we can do really great with those things. When we're well-rested, when we're well-fed and fueled, when there's low stress, we can be on, right? We can concentrate, we can be creative, we can get things done, we can execute, and it's the same for our kids. But it's easy to underestimate the power of stress and change. Those are two things that are enormously fatiguing to the brain. And when the brain is fatigued, the brain goes negative. The brain has a harder time accessing the higher level developmental functions that give us control and regulation. So we took this long period of time where kids were in a different schooling environment. Their sports were put on pause for a short amount of time. There was a lot going on that changed their day-to-day. And there was all these unknowns and questions that went along with it. So it was a period of time where all of us were just draining more of our brain's resources, making it harder. And if you think about I'm going to equate it to somebody with ADHD. An individual with ADHD, what research has shown is that areas of their brain are 30% behind. So 30% immature. So if you picture a 10-year-old sitting in a classroom, in some ways that 10-year-old is going to be a little bit more on par with a 7-year-old, not in all aspects, but their ability to pay attention, to self-regulate. The pandemic or sustained stress and change in some ways, creates an ADHD-like environment for all of us where it creates this uphill battle where we've got to work harder to do the same thing because of the stress and challenges that we're facing. We all desperately want to get back to regular life, right? We want to just forget it ever happened and move on, which is so understandable. But there's also some things in our day-to-day lives that have pivoted during that time. Escalation of technologies in kids and adults went through the roof during this time. And we cannot, as parents, underestimate the impact that has on our kids and their developing brain and on our own brains. And so when we look at what are things in our lives that we're doing on a daily basis that drain our resources, 
when kids are spending hours gaming or hours scrolling through their social media feed or hours on TikTok and YouTube videos, it drains those precious resources. And so we're putting kids in an environment where we're asking them to self-regulate, put your phone down. They don't have the developmental ability to regulate the way adults do. And we struggle to put our phones down, right? We get sucked into those same time warps that our kids do, but then we're leaving them unattended with a device that then we're asking them to police themselves on unless we are on it all day, which is hard and exhausting and frustrating as a parent to do. So, you know, to me, it's this just perfect storm of stress and change, increase in technology. Our kids in many ways, many kids, not all kids have greater gaps in their developmental maturity. But again, our expectations for them haven't changed. We still say you're 10. You should be able to pack your lunch and get out the door. You should be able to do your homework and get it turned in. You should know that going to an event for a friend's birthday party is going to be fun not anxiety inducing, but it's the reality of where so many of our kids are, where we see the statistics on ADHD, depression, anxiety, self-harm in our teenagers. Our kids are struggling at a higher degree now than they were pre-pandemic. Before we transition into getting our kids ready for the school year, which is right around the corner and setting them up for success, setting them up to get back on track, I want to talk very quickly with you about resiliency, because I hear all the time, oh, children are resilient. What does that mean? And how can we apply the children are resilient phrase to our conversation about lasting pandemic effects? That's such a great question because it gives the hope and positivity here, right? Kids are struggling, but there is a path forward. I think of it as neuroplasticity, which just simply means that the brain can change. That's a really exciting thing. A long time ago in science, it used to be this, if we didn't change the brain early on, we've lost that window and opportunity and you're just stuck where you are. We know that's not true. The brain can change at any age. And in fact, a child's brain is more malleable and more changeable than an older individual. With adults, we've got layers of an onion that we've got to peel back to get to the core of things. So with kids, being really purposeful and intentional about their day can help to strengthen and support the networks and pathways that allow them to pay attention, to keep anxiety and mood under control, to allow them to learn successfully in the classroom. So when we think about resilience in kids, we can support that by making sure They have the fuel they need to support their brain. Are they well-rested, hydrated? Have they eaten good foods so they've got the fuel to sustain their day? Are they getting enough physical activity? Physical activity is the simplest thing that we can do to energize and engage the brain along with sensory stimulation. It's, It's so powerful for exercising networks and pathways in the brain. So balancing sensory experiences and movement with technology use. Technology isn't bad. We just need to find that balance there can help to support resilience in kids so that they can thrive and be successful in all environments. I definitely want to dig down deep into those suggestions you just gave, (laughs) and we're going to do that in a minute. But what I think I hear you saying is that the pandemic happened. There's nothing that parents can do about it. It's in the past. It's hopefully in our rearview mirror. There's nothing we can do to prevent future pandemics or future major 
disruptions in our children's lives. But there are, even even though all of that is true, there are things that we can control. And so that's where I want to transition our conversation to, Dr. Jackson, is what we parents can control. And you mentioned something there. You mentioned exercise. You mentioned fuel. You mentioned rest. Let's start with rest because this is, I know as a parent, this is where I'm going to struggle the most. My children are on this schedule where they go to bed really late and wake up really late. And that is just not going to (laughs) fly in a couple weeks time. So talk to me about rest, making sure they get enough rest, getting them back on the school rest sleep schedule. What ideas do you have for parents like me? To be clear, my kids are 13 and 15. And so I can give you lots of great advice. It doesn't mean it's easy to implement, but it's what we all strive for. I always think about it in terms of, I want to set my kids up for success. And think about how you yourself feel when you're exhausted. We have a harder time controlling our mood and emotions. Our temper is going to be shorter. We have a hard time focusing. And so we cannot expect our kids to be successful in their school day if they're going to school exhausted. And I'm going to bring it back to technology again, which I don't mean to harp on that, but technology is a huge distractor and disruptor of sleep. And so getting our kids when it's back to school time we can change the rules. We can say, hey, we've learned a little bit more. So here's how we're going to approach things this year based on what we know. And what we know is we don't want technology an hour before bedtime. That blue light signals to the brain to wake up, to turn on. So you're going to have a harder time falling asleep and getting that good, healthy, deep sleep if there's technology in the hour before bedtime. My recommendation is devices out of the bedroom. We wake up in the middle of the night and what we do is we reach for the phone to check the time and then we see somebody text us or snapped us and I'm curious to what that is and now I'm awake and now I'm scrolling in the middle of the night. So I think having devices out of the room and getting into those healthy routines can help us slowly transition and don't transition the night before. Give it a two-week lead-in where you're shifting as a family. And then a great way to help wake up first thing in the morning is physical exercise. And it doesn't mean you need to go for a five-mile run in order to wake up. One to three minutes of spiking your heart rate is a huge signal to the brain to just be awake. If you have a teenager, getting them to get up and like stair sprint or jump rope is probably not going to be an easy conversation. But modeling those things for the kids of, oh my gosh, I'm so tired and sluggish this morning. I'm going to stand in the kitchen and do jump squats and I'm going to look ridiculous, but that's what I'm doing to turn my brain on, to clear the cobwebs, to get ready for the day. I love your point there with regard to technology. I feel as though a lot of parents who have given technology to their children, they now feel like, oh, it's too late for me to put restrictions on or, oh, it's too late for me to change anything or tweak anything. It's done. They have it. But what I hear you saying is that you can always say, we know more, we've learned more about the impact of technology on our well-being. So we're going to continue to tweak our family's practices around technology as more information, more research comes out. And so I just say that to all the parents who are listening, perhaps with older kids, who just feel like the uphill battle with regard to tech is one that they don't even want to engage in (laughs) because it's just so difficult. So I love that. And I also love your 
idea of scaling back the earlier bedtime now. So my kids go to be- go back to school in three weeks. I need to start now, like a 9.30 bedtime for my nine-year-old is not going to fly in a couple of weeks. It's just not. And so starting now, no technology in the rooms. I hear all that. But how do we know? Like our children, or at least my children, they're nine and six. I can tell when they're tired because I know them really well, but they perhaps don't know that they're tired. They don't have that wisdom and maturity to know that they're bursting into tears because they're overtired. They think the immediate reason, the stressor, is why they're bursting into tears. But as the parent, I tend to be able to see the whole picture. Oh, you didn't sleep good the last two nights or whatever. So how can we teach or show our children that sleep is really important and they should be prioritizing it? And I know that's a really hard question, but I'm asking it because my oldest daughter seems to think that like she doesn't need to sleep all that much. And the behavior that she's exhibiting is showing me the complete opposite. Do you have any thoughts there? To me, it comes down to starting to build interoception in our kids. And interoception is awareness of myself and how I feel. And it's something that as an adult, we're still working on that, right? And so something that I've worked on in myself is when I find myself stressed or irritable, I stop and I take stock and I ask myself the questions. Did I get enough sleep last night? Have I eaten today? Have I had protein? Because again, a tired brain is going to be negative or a brain that's run out of resources. I ask myself, what are my stress levels? Is there something that I can change or alter in my stress level? Have I exercised? And so in order to empower our kids with that information, it's having that internal conversation out loud. And so it's role modeling for them and it's pointing out your own behaviors. And so if I've lost my temper and snapped at the kids to stop and apologize and say, I'm so sorry, I lost my temper. Let's try that conversation again. And then it's not a justification or an excuse for poor behavior, but to help them understand, you know what, when I think about my day, I did not get enough sleep last night. And right now I'm feeling stressed. And so I am going to be more likely to lose my temper. So here's what I'm going to do so that I don't have that happen again. So I'm going to go to bed early tonight and I'm going to go for a walk after dinner just to clear my head to reduce my stress. So I think it's just constantly role modeling that information. And as parents, I feel like a broken record. But then that moment when your child repeats it back to you, you're like, oh my gosh, something I said is getting through. So I think it's being vulnerable and showing how it impacts you. And then it's also reflecting back to them. And so you can say the next time your nine-year-old who doesn't think she needs a lot of sleep, tell her what you see. I see right now that you're sad And your body language is telling me you're really frustrated. So acknowledging what and how she's feeling and then say, I want to support you. Here's what I think might be helpful. Let's make sure you get a good night's sleep tonight. Is there anything else I can help you with in this moment? So reflect back to them what you see. And I like to do an emotion and something physical so that it helps to build their awareness of, okay, when I'm tired, here's how I look and here's how I feel. So it's a slow process of building that self-awareness. But I think as parents, we have an opportunity to learn and model that in ourselves and share that and help our kids foster that as well. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm not the world's best mom by any means, but I appreciate you mentioning the importance of modeling because as my daughters get older, I've learned, I've realized that it's not about telling 
or lecturing or even teaching. It's more about showing and behaving in a way <laughs> that I would like them to emanate. And when we come back, we're going to take a quick break, Dr. Jackson. But when we come back, I want to talk about food, healthy snacks, healthy meals, as opposed to lunchboxes filled with junk food. Why should we be putting in the effort and energy to pack the healthier options? We're going to talk about that big topic after a quick sponsor break. Hello, Sustainable Minimalist listeners. Are you committed to living a greener and simpler life? Well, meet Home Threads, your ally in more sustainable and minimalist home decor. As the total destination for decor and furniture, Home Threads helps you define your minimalist lifestyle while respecting the planet. Discover their exclusive Haven collection. They use many sustainable materials without compromising on style. And here's the best part. Home Threads always has the best value. It was time. After nine years of living in our home, it was time to replace our outdoor furniture. And my husband and I, we went to Home Threads. We have a Home Threads patio umbrella and a new bench. And oh my goodness, we are so in love Create a home that reflects your commitment to the environment. Visit homethreads.com slash sustainable and get a code for 15% off your first order. Homethreads.com slash sustainable. Love where you live. So many of us have chaotic closets that are crammed full of clothing items and yet somehow we still have nothing to wear. Well, upgrading to high-quality and affordable pieces from Quince when you need them is a game-changer. They offer organic cotton sweaters and washable silk tops. My 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters are my go-to. Not only are they affordable, but the quality is top-notch. They wear better than the cashmere sweaters that are double their price. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash sustainable podcast for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sustainable podcast to get free shipping and 365 day returns. One more time, quince.com slash sustainable podcast. And we're back. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Rebecca Jackson. She is the author of the new book coming out on September 5th. It's titled Back on Track, A Practical Guide to Help Kids of All Ages Thrive. Dr. Jackson, I want to talk to you about food because, well, there's a lot of reasons. Number one is packing the lunchbox is a pain in the butt. I hate it. My husband hates it. We all hate it. Number two is the ultra-processed foods that come in single-use disposable snack packs are so convenient to just throw in the lunchbox and make the whole feeding my child lunch and sending it off to school so much easier. That said, I do have an inkling that the junk food <laughs> is impacting my children's, not only their behavior, but perhaps you're going to tell me their development. So tell me, like, motivate me as to pack them healthier stuff as opposed to junk. Why should I be putting in that effort into the lunchboxes and the dinners and the snacks and all of it? Motivate you. That's a big challenge, but I think we can do this. 
our job as parents is to set our kids up for success. And a school day is exhausting. We can underestimate how much a school day is. Do you know, asking a child to sit still actually takes energy and effort. At a young age, their bodies naturally want to move. And so just holding still is exhausting. So the quality of food that we provide for our kids has a huge impact on their ability to pay attention and sustain attention, to their ability to not have crashes in mood and energy. And when that crashes, we're going to be more prone to those upsets. So when we're doing things like food dyes, that can have a huge impact on a lot of kids. It can spike hyperactivity. They can lose control of their mood and emotions. When there's a lot of sugars involved, it's going to spike hyperactivity. We're going to lose attention and focus. And then when it crashes, we're going to lose attention and focus again for an opposite reason. And it, I'm with you. The <laughs> We've packed lunches. My kids are 13 and 15. It's why I'm happy when school comes out for the summer. I always said if feeding the kids wasn't so hard, I would have had more. <laughs> but we stopped it too, because feeding kids intentionally is a lot of work. And then it's also finding that balance. So it's not a push pull battle with the kids of I'm sending you to school with this and you're looking around and seeing everybody else eat that. So what we try to emulate in my house is a fuel first mentality. Meaning, let's talk about what your brain and body needs in order to do its job. It needs protein, it needs carbohydrates, and it needs healthy fats. Those are the things that help us be our best version of ourselves. So we're less likely to get our name called out in class. We're more likely to be able to keep up and follow along. And snacks and treats are good and fun and okay. We want to find the balance with that, but we want to fuel first. And once we're full from fuel, then it's okay to have those snacks and treats. So we do a lot of bento boxes. So because we need it to be fast and convenient, we're all in a hurry, but we also want to give our kids some choice with that. And so in the bento box, ours have five containers or five slots. We might do a, I pick two, you pick a few, or here are the things that we can choose from. So we're going to do a protein. What protein would you like this week? We're going to do a vegetable. What vegetable would you like? When we do a treat with the lunch, it's here are the treats that you can choose from. So when my kids were young, I would bring things home and say, this is what we're going to eat this week. What day do you want the different things? As they've gotten older, they come to the grocery store with me. They grab a basket and they go grab what they want. But again, they know those are the boxes that they've got to check. So I want to find an opportunity for them to have some choice in this scenario. And we want to balance it so they get to eat some of the fun treat things as well. In our household, we're still going to do treats that we're going to work to avoid the artificial food dyes and minimally processed as much as possible. I've had to let go of a little bit of that in that finding balance, but then also just making sure we're checking those boxes of protein, carbohydrate, good, healthy fat. I, When it comes to food, I feel frustrated talking about the uphill battle it's hard to consistently pack and offer and present our children with healthy food items when everybody else, it seems like, and that's a huge exaggeration, but I'm feeling frustrated. So let's just go with that. When everybody else in the whole class and the whole school is eating junk food, my daughters do come home and they say, why can't I have a treat in my lunchbox or two treats? Or why can't I have Lay's potato chips in my lunchbox? So I guess I'm just wondering, 
for parents like me, do you have any research you can cite as to the impacts of the unhealthy stuff on our kids' attention and energy and behavior? Or do you have any words of motivation for me who, again, just feels like, I feel like I'm the only one trying and I'm not even doing that great of a job at feeding them healthy stuff? Honestly, I feel like you're not incorrect in feeling like you're the only one. My kid's school doesn't have a cafeteria. So when they were young, it took parents coming in to volunteer over the lunchroom or in the lunchtime. And so I saw And the kids were right when they came home saying, mom, I'm the only one eating this way. They weren't the only one, but it was maybe like two or three others. And this is a tough conversation because I don't ever want my kids judging other kids, right? So I like to talk about it in terms of every family has their core values and beliefs and they decide what's important to them. One of the things that we've decided as a family is what we eat is super important to us. We want to be healthy and we want to feel good and we want to function well. We tie it back to mood and emotion a lot because again, when the kids are hungry, they can notice that they're more crabby and irritable, but just being mindful of what you eat. Now, what we know about processed food, going to the research, what we know about processed foods is it drives up inflammation. Systemic inflammation means every single cell in your body is retaining water. Systemic inflammation makes everything harder. And so to set our kids up for success in the school day, we want to minimize that systemic inflammation. And one way that we can do that is minimizing the processed foods, the preservatives, the food dyes, the sugars. Those are all pieces that drive and spike inflammation. Then we can start to get into other individual foods that that can also drive inflammation. Some of that, there's certainly trends in the statistics and the data. We know that dairy and gluten tend to be very high drivers of inflammation for everybody. And if you then react with a food sensitivity or allergy to those pieces, it's really going to magnify and accelerate the inflammation. So you can go down a long thread to, to take that even further. But as a general rule, the more processed the food is, the more it's going to drive inflammation, which is going to interfere with those fragile resources of attention and focus, mood and emotional regulation. That's exactly what I needed, Dr. Jackson. You just motivated me. I'm back on board. Thank you. It doesn't mean it's not <laughs> going to be frustrating and exhausting, but there's a good reason. And again, I like to just talk about it in terms of this is what our family chooses to value and prioritize. Now, to be clear, I also know that when my friends go over, or my kids go over to a friend's house, they're like, yay. So we try to also have treats and snacks on hand so it doesn't become this teeter-totter of one way or another, but finding that happy balance, happy medium in between. The last topic I want to discuss with you, Dr. Jackson, before we say goodbye is perhaps lessening the stresses that our children may be facing as they start a new school year. Perhaps they're going into a new school. Maybe they're starting middle school or even high school. The start of a new school year can be stressful. When I was a kid, I remember the night before school being up with those nervous jitters. And so when we talk about getting our kids back on track and ready for the school year, yes, we should and can talk about food and sleep. But let's talk about the stresses that our kids may very likely be feeling. What can we as parents do to lessen lessen that back to school stress? Think of how you yourself feel before something new and unexpected. So as adults, we don't change jobs all that often anymore. But if you think back to your first day of a new job or maybe you're about to go on a big trip and it's international and you've never done that before, 
the unknown is scary. My daughter, when she was young, would use the term nerve sighted. It was that combination of nervous and excited. So back to school is a huge time of nerve sighted for the kids and the parents too. There's always this pressure of fresh start. We're going to do things different this year. This is going to be the year where we're going to be on top of it. We're going to pack the healthy lunches. We're not going to let the homework spin out of control. But for our kids, the more unknowns there are and the less they're able to visualize what's coming, the more worrisome that's going to be. And that's for every child. Then if you have a child that struggled with social pieces last year, maybe there was some bullying or some really unkind behaviors. Maybe they struggled to keep up and follow along in class. Maybe the sensory environment of a classroom experience is really overwhelming and exhausting. There are so many additional factors that can be really hard on our kids. And so to help our kids prepare for this, the more they can know and understand the better. So when I think about an elementary school child, if they can picture what the classroom is going to look like. So in schools, now that we're past pandemic, we get to go back in the classroom again. But it's not just the classroom. It's They're going to be thinking about when I go in the morning, where do I put down my bag? When I have to go to the bathroom, can I raise my hand? Where is the bathroom? What happens if my shoe comes untied and I don't know how to tie it? Who do I ask if I have a question? These are the things that are running through our kids' minds. And so making sure walk the classroom with them to show them, here's where you're going to sit when you have to go to the bathroom. Here's where you're going to go. And I find it's a partnership with the teacher for a successful year. And so if your child has any additional anxiety or struggles or challenges, proactively talk to the teacher about it ahead of time to say, hey, I want to make sure Susie is set up and feels good and isn't stressed and overwhelmed because a stressed brain has a harder time paying attention and listening. So then she might miss directions. And now the whole class is lining up and she's still in her seat. And now she's worried about that. So proactively connecting with teachers to answer some of those questions and to say, how can we bring this new experience to life before we get there. Then when we think about our kids going to middle school for the first time, this is huge. Do you remember going to your locker and spinning the lock one way, trying to figure out those combinations of right, left, and then it didn't open. Think about for a child that has anxieties or worries. I've got to find my locker. I've got to figure out the combination and get it to open. And I only have a certain amount of time to do that. So getting the lock ahead of time and practicing or getting a different lock that's easier to do. And then mapping it out and timing it out because schools do typically give you a lot of time, but for a child that hasn't walked the school yet, it might feel overwhelming. So time it and say, okay, here's what five minutes really feels like. Look, you do have plenty of time to walk from here to use the restroom and get to your next class. So I think the more we can help them visualize what's coming and telling them, how can I help? How can I support you? What's worrisome to you? The older they are, the more they're going to be able to verbalize that. But just really helping them know what to expect can help to lessen some of those initial concerns. Yeah, I love that answer. Again, it goes back to where we started, right? We as parents cannot control everything. We cannot take away all the problems, all the troubles, but we can certainly teach our middle schooler how to use their lock before the first day of school. We can certainly help our elementary school child know where the closest bathroom is, right? These are things that as parents, we can help our children get a handle on so that hopefully the stress that they feel at the start of a new school year can be more manageable. 
One more question. Well, two more questions for you, Dr. Jackson. The first is, it's a big one. If parents could do just one thing to set their child up for the new school year, just one thing, what would you suggest it is? We need to set expectations on our child's current development and abilities, not where we think they should be or where we want them to be. Our expectations sets us up for success and our kids up for success. So what I mean by that is if your nine-year-old has 40 minutes of homework to complete at night, but her attention span is 15 minutes expecting her to be able to do that if she's not there yet is an unfair expectation. You are going to get frustrated with her. Come on, pay attention. Just sit down and get through it. She's going to get frustrated because she's going to feel like she failed, like she's trying and she can't get there. So be realistic, not about your child's age, but where they're at developmentally and meet them there. So if she has 40 minutes of homework and a 15-minute attention span. She works independently for 15 minutes. Then you join her. You support her to help get through the rest of the homework. Expectations, when they're not met, are disappointing and frustrating. Our kids want us to feel proud. They want us to be happy. And we want them to feel good and proud and setting really realistic expectations and knowing that can change over time. Kids are malleable. There's neuroplasticity, the brain can change. And with some intentional activities, we can help to support that, to accelerate growth and development, to get them back on track. But we've got to meet them where they are. Yes. And as a former teacher, I will just say that our kids' teachers are doing exactly what you just said academically in the classroom. Any teacher worth their salt is meeting our children where they're at, not where they should be according to their chronological age. And so what I think I hear you saying is to support what the teachers are doing in terms of meeting them where they're at, setting expectations academically, support that at home. Absolutely. And huge shout out to our teachers. I feel like their job gets harder and harder every year. So, so much gratitude for our teachers. Yes. Last question, Dr. Jackson. Tell us about your new book, Back on Track, when it comes out, where we can find it, and what else is in there that we didn't discuss today. Yeah. The book is all about the lessons we learned from the pandemic, why that time created some of the catalyst for the additional challenges that we're seeing and what we can do to create change there to lessen the struggles for our kids. How can we set our kids up for success by driving change? And it's going to be available everywhere where books are available. So you can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Indie Books, so you can support a local bookseller or a big box store. But the book's going to be available everywhere. And the book is providing hope and actionable steps for parents to help support their kids. Well, Dr. Jackson, I want to thank you so much for your time. I've learned a lot. I will be packing those healthy lunches. Children, get ready. They're going to hate me, but it's happening. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Listeners, show notes are at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 391. Do not miss Thursday's episode where we are discussing school supplies. What are we as eco-friendly minimalists supposed to do with that back-to-school list. I have my thoughts for you as an eco-minimalist mom, but also as a teacher. So stay tuned for that. I'll see you on Thursday. Reach out if you need me. I hope your decluttering challenge is going so well. Let me just say my six-year-old, <laughs> she dropped out on day four. She said, and I quote, it wasn't fun. <laughs> but my nine-year-old is still 
rocking it. She's doing so well. She really wants the experience prize at the end, which is a yes day. Oh my goodness, I got a beater. I'll see you Thursday and take care.